we've come to the end of this session, and um, uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll uh, have the teaching rotation among the elders, and uh, David will be preaching on Sunday mornings, beginning next Sunday. So, um, there's a major shift coming up in, in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, uh, which is uh, probably not a good idea to start with and then wait another eight months to continue. Uh, so um, we're going to be looking really at uh, just one verse today, verse 31, but it's a verse that affords us an opportunity not only to look at the Scriptures, but to look at ourselves. And so we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. I'd like to ask Daniel Marsh if he pray for the ministry of the Word after I read this passage. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Let us pray. Amen. This verse, this passage is set uh, just at the end of the introduction of Paul, of Saul of Tarsus and his uh, breathing threats and murder upon the church and then his conversion to, to become a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 30 we read that um, he was uh, shipped off to Tarsus because even in faith he was still a bit of a problem. He calls himself in Galatians uh, the chief of sinners. And apparently it was a pretty accurate description. Because immediately after his departure we read that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. He must have been a real pip. He said, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure in his introduction to the Galatians. And, and apparently that measure was, was quite intense and quite unbearable so that his departure from the scene uh, brought about this season of peace. But Saul wasn't the only problem that we read about in the book of Acts. There was a complaint arose among the Hellenistic Jews we saw in Acts chapter 6 regarding the distribution of the alms of the, of the benevolence fund. So within the church already there was disagreements and there was um, discord because things weren't being dealt with equitably and the Hellenistic widows were feeling slighted in their own care versus the, the, the Hebrew widows, even though they were all Jews at that time. We also read in Acts chapter 5, but a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and brought the proceeds. Uh, so there was already deception within the church, even Satan. As Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit? And so the church that we read about having peace here in verse 31 of chapter 9, uh, it hasn't always been that way. And it wasn't just the persecution that came from Saul, but it was also trouble from within that caused discord and, and discontent and turmoil within the church. The rest of the New Testament will show that issues like this 
both persecution from without and struggles within are sadly going to be the common life of the church of Jesus Christ. We read the book of or the, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, for example, and you think, man, that was a troubled church. They had their more than their share of problems. One writer says, a pure period when everyone believes exactly the same thing and lived in a community without problems or quarrels and hammered out the true doctrine for the great church never existed. And, and if, if it didn't exist in the New Testament period, this, this Elysium, this time when everybody got along and everything was love and everybody just kind of sat down around their Bibles and studied doctrine. If it didn't happen then, has it happened since? No. And it's not happening now. So those of us who, especially within the Reformed tradition, who, who like to look back to a certain era within church history and say, you know, that's when they got it right. They didn't get it right then. They, they, you know, they had their disagreements then. And, and those of us, perhaps, who are looking for the perfect church, let me tell you, if you find it, don't go there. You'll ruin it. You know, it just it doesn't exist. Because of the sin that dwells within our members and because of the iron sharpening iron and that we only see in a mirror dimly, so many things that we're taught about ourselves in Scripture teach us that these times of peace are, are really a blessing. It's a very encouraging passage for a pastor. It's a very encouraging passage to, to, be, to, to meditate on, to realize that times of trouble and turmoil are not, even though they're, they're perhaps the common life, that they're not all the time. That there are times and seasons of refreshing when we can enjoy peace. It's a very comforting passage, especially when it applies. This month, August, is the anniversary of my being ordained as an elder in Fellowship Bible Church. 26 years ago. It's a long time. I was thinking of the Billy Joel song, When I Wore a Younger Man's Clothes. You know, it was a long time ago. And during that time, uh, do you think that uh, it was entirely a pure period when we all got along and there wasn't any controversies? No. A lot of turmoil, a lot of struggle, a lot of disagreement, a lot of departures, a lot of heartache. But it's a joy to be able to preach on this passage during a time when it applies. Our church is, by God's grace, experiencing peace. Now, the, the literal Greek of that passage is, it says that the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Just had peace. I like the New American Standard rendering. They enjoyed it. I bet they did. Peace is something that we don't always have. But it's something that when we have, we should enjoy it. We should be glad for it. We should thank God for it. But it is also a time when we should consider both the times of turmoil and the times of peace and examine our own hearts and to also determine that this peace that God has given is indeed from God because there are other forms of peace that are not from God and they do not bring blessing. So there's tremendous comfort in verse 31. These people, these uh, ancestors of ours in the faith were having peace. They were being built up. They were being edified. 
And they were going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Luke even provides us with a description of what that peace looks like. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's not just a homogeneity of thought where everybody gets along. It's not the absence of, of discontent. Rather, it is going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We have had at Fellowship Bible Church years of turmoil in the past. One cause of that turmoil is somewhat endemic to the type of church we are. We are a non-denominational church. We are an independent church. Independent churches tend to draw people of independent thinking. Independent people don't tend to agree with one another. I've often said uh, that our church is like the island of misfit toys in one of those old Christmas animated movies, you know, where the toys had something wrong with them, a little train with square wheels. I can think of myself as a train with square wheels. You know, it's like we have something wrong with us that doesn't quite fit in other churches where we've been especially for many of us, denominational churches. There's just something about how we think, something a little maybe off kilter with our brain that just doesn't line up with that confession and allow us to sit in the pew meekly. So we go to an independent church. So we've had that issue, the, the inherent instability of independence. Also, we've been kind of, for, for many years in our particular church, we've been kind of dialing in on doctrine. Now, those of you who, who are able to attend Sunday school beginning next week or in two weeks, uh, Mark will be starting the discovery class, which is a very important time. We don't do it every year, but it's a time when we talk about the history and the doctrine and the practice of Fellowship Bible Church. It is a good thing to attend. But one thing I think you'll learn is that ours was a church that was founded without much of a purpose except to get together as opposed to being at another church. It was, in fact, a, somewhat of a split off. And the doctrine of our church meandered through the years until finally the, the, the scriptures being preached faithfully and studied have led us in the direction of Reformed Baptist doctrine. And yet not in such a way that we have become a denomination. So we've managed to maintain independence while honing in on doctrine. Another issue that caused a, a great deal of, of opposition within the church years ago was the idea of a plurality of pastors. When the elders came up with the idea, and we believe from Scripture, that elders are in fact pastors, and that a true biblical pastoral ministry is a plurality meaning multiple shepherds from the pulpit shepherding the flock, there was great opposition to that. I was told by one person I remember that the ship needs a captain. I thought the captain was Jesus, but apparently he's the senior pastor. Okay? Um, you know, we were informed that you, you can't survive. Uh, I remember one time one, one young man gave us six months to live. Still beating. Six months we were given. That was uh, probably 14 or 15 or 16 years ago. And by God's grace, I think he has, I don't know, vindicated the wisdom. 
because we are enjoying a season of peace and of growth and of joy in fellowship. And so I think it's, um, it, it's a good idea to conclude this particular session in, in our study of Acts with a kind of a self-examination, looking at not so much where we've been, but where we are. I know that I, I speak for my brother elders in saying that we enjoy peace and we'd like it to continue. But not at the expense of what is true. And that's what I want to talk about. Times of turmoil and times of peace are both times of self-examination. For example, if we are undergoing times of turmoil, the first question to ask is whether that turmoil is self-inflicted. And that's both personal and corporate. You know, we do bring trouble on ourselves sometimes. And when we do that, we can't very well say this is from God. You know, it's our, our own fault. And when we are enjoying times of peace, we can ask ourselves the question, uh, is this a false peace? Have we bought this peace at too high a price? For example, have we, have we diluted our doctrine to the point where we really don't believe anything, but because we believe nothing, everybody can get along? That's peace at too high a price. Have we minimized the exclusive nature of salvation in Jesus Christ? In other words, have we, have we kind of opened other doors? Have we made other ways to God rather than the one way, the one truth, the one life, Jesus? See, if we've done that, we might enjoy a great deal of peace. We might all get along. I, I imagine that the, the Unitarian Church that I pass every day on State Park Road really get along well together. They're going to have a Renaissance Fair again this year. They don't believe anything. So there's really no reason for them not to get along. Have we bought peace at that kind of a price? Do we tolerate sin? Do we allow things to go on in the body? Known and unrepented. That's not the price we can pay for, pe for, for peace. The characteristic of true peace is given to us in this passage, going on in the fear of the Lord. You see, there's an understanding that times of turmoil and times of peace both come from the hand of God. And so when we're, when we're in times of turmoil, it's a time when we, we go to the Psalms a lot and we ask, how long, O Lord? And we, we go to Psalm 139 and they search me, O Lord, and see if there be any way in me or in us. We, we seek his face and ask that though crying may last for the night, the joy might come again in the morning. If we're suffering persecution from without, we ask, are we bearing faithful witness? Or are we deserving of the persecution that we suffer? And when we experience peace, we ask ourselves, do we still have the fear of the Lord? Do we know that it is God who grants times of refreshing as well as times of wilderness? And from both we can learn from Him. So we go on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Understanding that fellowship among believers is by the Holy Spirit. We do not all share a, a common history. We do not all share common politics or, or common views on, on rearing families or education or the current administration of government. We have different views. That's not what unites us. In fact, if that's what unites us, then we're nothing more than a club. We're not a church. 
What unites us because of our differences, because of the diversity of the giftedness of the Holy Spirit, what unites us is the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and among us. And so peace is not an absence of the fear of the Lord. Peace is its intense presence. As each one of us, each member of the body, is aware that he or she stands before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an answer for the deeds done in the flesh. And therefore, within the body, we are challenged by the Apostle Paul to provide what each joint and ligament gives to the whole body for the building up of itself in love. We all have a role. We all have a part. And the fear of the Lord motivates us to do our part, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit rewards us with times of peace. There are three areas I want to look at briefly as we look at where we are and then very briefly at where we might be in the future. Doctrine, polity, and fellowship. What we believe, how we are governed, and how we get along with one another. I already mentioned that in doctrine, a church can have the peace of the grave. In doctrine, it can abandon the teachings of Scripture and particularly the glory and the completeness of the work of Jesus Christ. It can minimize the teaching of sin. It can maximize this um, supposed alleged inner light that all men are supposed to have. It can talk up how good we are in spite of the many evidences of our badness. And it can minimize the necessity of divine grace for salvation. And we can have peace on that basis. And there are, I think, many churches today who do sit around on Sunday mornings congratulating themselves for being so wonderful, so enlightened, and so free of religious bondage, also free of grace. Passage, I think, that uh, summarizes our view with regard to doctrine at Fellowship Bible Churches, Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where he writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Theology has a great deal of distinct items within it, that can be debated and argued about and disagreed upon. And each one of those individual items can cause division within the body of Christ. And so I think it is very important for the peace of the body to continually strive to focus on the key elements of the gospel and to allow the other elements of theology to be things that we discuss and often disagree upon without the need to break fellowship. Paul said that if any man come to you or even an angel preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed. See, Paul drew the line. He, there were many things that he said if, if, to, to the Philippians. He said if, if anybody has a different opinion, well, God will show him as well. Or he said to the Philippians again, that which we have attained, let us stand in it. And, and what he meant there is we're not all at the same place. 
in our understanding of the whole counsel of Scripture. But if we think that where we are is as we have arrived and everyone else is wrong, will that be conducive to peace within the body of Christ? We've been studying the Anabaptists. And we saw that the Anabaptists were really good at holding firm to their convictions. Every single one. Yielding on none of them. And so they split. And then they split again. And then they split again. They were like some little comic thing. You cut them up and they run around. You know, they, there's so many of them because they, they felt that everything they believed was of the utmost importance. Well, that doesn't, con that doesn't conduct peace within the body. On the other hand, the gospel, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ, His, His complete payment of our sin and our complete salvation in Him, that's, that's fundamental. And upon that we stand. We, we're non-denominational, which means we, we do not have a standard that has been made for us. We, we don't appeal to any confession or creed and say, okay, visitor, th this is who we are. No, basically we say, okay, visitor, this is who we are. And you, and you listen to the elders preach, you listen to men teach in Sunday school, and you realize that, that we, we try to model ourselves after the Bereans that we read about in the book of Acts. Studying the scriptures to see that these various things that we're hearing are indeed truth. And so we do not have a denominational structure or standard. On the essentials, we are unyielding. On the non-essentials, we seek to be gracious. All the while praying for wisdom to know the difference. And that's the challenge for every one of us. To know what is essential and to know what is non-essential, to know where to stand and stand firm, immovable, and to know where to be gracious and to allow another brother to believe as he understands the Scripture to teach, fully according him the respect of a child of God. Why? Why is doctrine important? Why not just get rid of it because it causes such division? Well, I think Jesus' own prayer for us, the high priestly prayer in John 17, gives us the reason why. He prayed to the Father that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. We don't study doctrine so that we can win a debate. We don't study doctrine so we can write a book. We study the scriptures because it is the truth of God. It is the revelation of God. And it is our sanctification. Paul says to the Romans that, that we be not conformed to this world but rather be transformed by the renewing of our minds. By what? Well, in Ephesians he calls it the washing of the water of the Word. It's the Word of God that renews our minds and causes us to think God's thoughts after Him. This is where He has revealed His mind to man. And He has given us the ability to, to understand it. And He's given us the illumination of the Holy Spirit to shed light upon it. And so rather than being conformed to the way the world thinks, which is frankly what happens to every one of us unless we resist it, we have our minds renewed and transformed by studying God's Word. That's what we're about. 
The second item that is unique to our church is our polity, our form of government. We are committed to a plurality of pastoring elders, those raised up from among the flock. Key passage there for our guidance is Acts chapter 8, verse 28. Excuse me, Acts chapter 20, verse 28 where Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. That passage is so powerful to those who aspire to pastoral ministry. First it tells us to shepherd all the flock, to be on guard for all the flock, among which... He has made you overseers. There's that from the midst. Among the flock, He has raised up men to be overseers, to shepherd the church, which He purchased with His own blood. It's not our church. It's His. I did not pay any blood to be a pastor of Fellowship Bible Church. But God sent His only begotten Son, who shed His precious and innocent blood to purchase from every nation, tongue, and tribe a people for Himself. It's His church. He is the Good Shepherd. He is the Great Shepherd. We are under-shepherds. The idea of elders coming from the midst of the body rather than pastors being called from without comes from the idea of Christ's sheep knowing His voice. And the logical conclusion of that is if, if the sheep know the chief shepherd's voice, they ought to know the under-shepherd's voices too. And so for men to live in our midst is for the rest of the flock to come to know them and to come to trust them and to begin to hear their voice to such an extent that the leadership of the church and the congregation as a whole merely has to acknowledge that God has raised someone up to be an elder, to be a pastor, a shepherd of his flock. And to that end, we hold fast to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul writes, That which I taught you, that which I entrusted to you, you teach faithful men who will then teach others after them. Young men, you're in the crosshairs. Some of you will be raised up to be shepherds of this flock. And therefore, it is incumbent upon the old men to teach the scriptures to the young men and for the young men to learn them. And so that's, that's our polity. That's our, our government. Again, it's not a denomination. We don't have a, a headquarters anywhere. We don't have a mission agency. We don't have a health care plan. We don't have a lot of things that are considered vital for a pastoral ministry today. But I do think we have the strength of the example of Scripture and the teaching of the Holy Spirit concerning elders. Third point and the final one, and I think perhaps the most important to peace within the body, is fellowship. Independent churches are inherently transient, if you haven't noticed. Okay. Non-denominational churches are transient institutions in a very transient age. Ours is an age and a people that moves around a lot. And within the church, people move around even more. And within Greenville, it's all the time. We got so many of them. 
And so the idea of fellowship, which is the Greek word koinonia, which means partaking one with another, is, is really difficult to attain when the average professing Christian attends a church for less than two years and a pastor for less than seven. How do we attain fellowship, a sharing of our faith, knowing, as we must know, that most of the people that we see on a given Sunday we will not see one year later. They will have moved on to another church. Ours is no different than other churches. Again, we do not have a denominational structure that continually brings in people. When people move to Greenville, and, and Greenville is one of the fastest growing cities in the, in the country. So we're adding thousands of people every year to Greenville and the Baptists are going to the Baptist church, and the Presbyterians are going to the Presbyterian, the Episcopalians are going to the Episcopal church. We're just Fellowship Bible Church. We have a website. <laughs> a good one. I mean, we, we want to let people know that we're here, but, but we do not have that denominational name or structure that will, will naturally kind of replenish. And I think that's a good thing, because it causes us to constantly look at ourselves and ask, on what basis do we have koinonia? And how do we have koinonia in a transient world, in a transient church? Well, one way is to be self-consciously accepting on the basis of professed faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, when people come to Fellowship Bible Church, by and large, they will feel accepted. They will, they will, will feel welcomed. And the basis of that fellowship will be their mutual profession of faith in Jesus Christ. There won't be questions about doctrinal beliefs or where you're from or what you've been through. That'll all come out in koinonia. See, that'll all come out as we fellowship. We start with the position of accepting that it is very likely that you are also a misfit toy. And we're all on this island together until Rudolph comes. The passage, I think, that governs our thought with regard to fellowship is from Romans chapter 14, a chapter that is very rarely spoken upon in most churches. In verse 4, Paul writes, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Well, this passage counsels latitude. There are many, many ways that each one of us individually and as parents apply our Christian faith to our own life. We don't all do it the same way. One example might be some of us will send our children to public school, others will homeschool. And in between there will be private schools. That's a very important decision for every family to make, and there are churches out there who are home school churches. We've been asked whether we are such a church. And when we answered no, we never saw that family again. Because that's what they were looking for. They were looking for uniformity. They were looking for a group of people who could shout amen at everything they did. But we're not going to do that. But we will defend everyone's right 
to walk according to the light that God has given them. Which means that oftentimes we will not be seen to be doing things decently and in order. And sometimes it might seem a bit chaotic. But what we're about is, is a family. And I don't know, I have five siblings. I have 38 nieces and nephews. And I'm not even counting how many they've had. I've stopped counting. Stop sending birthday cards too. <laughs> too many of them. You know, you get, you get in a family and you realize we're not all alike, are we? You know, we're actually genetically united. And yet we're so different in the way we raise our children and how we, how we live our faith. And by God's grace, all five of my siblings are believers. And, and it's, it's interesting to get together. And sometimes it's confrontational. But we're, we're basically like that. That's what the church is about. That's why Paul wrote Romans 14. To tell the church, you do not have the right to hold your convictions at the expense of koinonia. You have the right to your convictions, and you each have the responsibility to grant one another each other's conviction, and not to judge. But Paul made a very interesting said. He said, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And what he means in the context of chapter 14 is that there must be compromise of convictions. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road as far as peace at Fellowship Bible Church. If there is a freedom, as there must be, then each one of us is responsible to consider our own convictions in the light of koinonia, and not to allow convictions to destroy fellowship. Now let me, let me try to flesh that out as we close. If such a conviction of yours it runs counter to the teaching or the practice of Fellowship Bible Church, and it is a conviction that you cannot yield, then you probably don't belong here. You're probably not meant to be at Fellowship Bible Church. If such a conviction prevents you from entering in to the various aspects of koinonia at Fellowship Bible Church, anything as, as mundane as, as financially giving. And let me tell you, the elders don't know who gives what. Okay? We don't get into that. That's all handled by the administrative. And we believe it's between you and the Lord. That's why we put the offering box and we don't pass a plate. So there's no, no temptation on the leadership to judge anyone on the basis of giving. But in your own heart, if you think, you know what, I, I really like these people, but because of something, I, I can't give. Or, or you cannot enter into worship. And you know how worship is such a contentious issue in the American church. They, they call it worship wars. You know, I can't enter into the worship. I mean, this is an integral part of koinonia. And if you find that you have convictions that do not fit, then I would ask you, I would exhort you to talk with one of the elders. To really, to, to just get together, have a cup of coffee and say, listen, I can't do this because of that. And to find out whether there is a place where koinonia can actually happen while both sets of convictions are firmly held. We're not asking for compromise except on those areas, as Paul writes in Romans 14, 
where we are not judging one another on the basis of our own convictions, but rather with the diversity of our convictions, we are still coming together in koinonia. It can work. Paul writes about it. The Holy Spirit exhorts it that we not judge one another. So then, Paul writes in Romans 14, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. There it is. We're enjoying peace. And it's a great time to preach on peace because we have it. We're enjoying growth. We're enjoying good teaching. We're enjoying good fellowship. It's a very good time to talk about it. But the greatest danger that I perceive to peace and fellowship at Fellowship Bible Church is the very strength that we have that allows each one of us to worship and to believe as we believe the Bible teaches. Rather than establishing rigid programs, age-based classes, where a family comes into a church like you put a handful of coins into one of those banks that sorts it, you know, your family comes into the church and the adults go one way and the young adults and the teens and the little ones are all forced off into there. No, we have those places, but we leave it to the parents to decide. No rigid structures because we know that not all have the same convictions. And so that's our commitment as, as pastors is to try to provide an atmosphere where everyone can worship God according to the truth and to continue to preach and teach the truth in Scripture. That's our commitment. Our request is that you not allow every single conviction that you have to be so strong that you actually will not fellowship with one another. That instead of coming together as a body, we are rather a congregation of individuals. That is not the church of Jesus Christ. It will do no benefit to you, your family, or to the rest of the body. Rather, Paul's exhortation in Philippians is, is the heart of koinonia and peace in the church of Jesus Christ. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and I would say that on August 26, 2018, having been a pastor of this church for over 26 years and a member for longer than that, this time that we are currently in is the closest to this description that I have ever experienced of mutual consolation and love and fellowship. Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.
Father, we do thank you for the season of peace that you have given us for the love that we have for one another, for the fellowship that we all enjoy. We know, Father, that it comes only from your grace and by your Holy Spirit. We know, Father, that we have no claim upon it in the future, but rather pray that we might not do anything to jeopardize the peace of the Holy Spirit, that we might go on in the fear of the Lord, enjoying one another's fellowship, sharpening one another through the Scriptures, holding one another up in prayer. Father, that we might be, by your grace, a model congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do these things for your glory and for our good and our enjoyment, and that you would give us critical spirits toward ourselves individually and toward ourselves as a body of believers, and that we would be earnest, as Paul has written, to maintain the unity of the body in the bond of peace, that we might earnestly seek the Holy Spirit to continue to bond our hearts together through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this morning from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen.